You know what, I'm going to stay down here. Because I'll be tucked in that corner there otherwise. Our scripture this morning is from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. In the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 78. Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 25. You're not going to like this one. I promise you. You're not going to like this passage at all. I didn't. The elders didn't. We read at the session meeting on Tuesday night. Nobody liked this one. So you're not going to like it. But it's the passage for today. So we'll see where we go with this. Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 25. Let's pray first. Lord, there are times when you speak to us. There are times when we read these words that we're not entirely sure what to do with them. They don't sit well with us at all. And we struggle to understand what is going on and what you would say, what you are saying. And so in different times in our lives as well, there are, there are periods, not just as we read Scripture, but there are different times in our lives where we have no idea what's going on. We struggle with the, with the emotions that, that well up inside, the confusion and the fear that we sometimes feel. And yet, Lord, you bring us to these passages. You bring us to these places. And wherever you bring us, you are there. Your hand is with us, leading us and guiding us. You promise never to leave us or forsake us. So when we come into these hard moments, may we fall back into your hands. And even in the struggle, may we see you. Now hear us as we pray, that we pray in your Son's most precious name. Amen. Luke 14, beginning at verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him. And he turned to them and he said... If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he's enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and has not been able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Can we say the word of the Lord? Thanks be to God. <laughs> so what are we going to do with that one then? Whoever does not hate his children, 
his wife, his mother, his father, his brothers, his sisters, even his own life. That one cannot be my disciple. That doesn't sit well with us at all, does it? Oh my goodness, that does not sit well with us. I think it's one of those passages that we, we ask ourselves the question, okay, there are scholars who say that there are some passages in the gospel that were written later. You know, the, the, the stories are not about Jesus, they're put on the lips of Jesus. Surely this is something that came later and it's maybe a wee bit of an aberration. Well, you could say that. The only challenge with that is this. Those scholars would also argue that um, the passages of Jesus, the words of Jesus that are more difficult to understand, that are more challenging to hear, that don't sit well with us and don't seem to come out of anywhere else in his own culture. From any other teaching, these are the words that are most likely to be the words of Jesus himself. The difficult passages are most likely to be the words of Jesus. So we most likely can't say, well, this is somebody else writing this and pan that off somewhere else. We also find that maybe, maybe we can say, well, do, do words mean something different? Do we look at the, 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 the way that the words are being used, that the words themselves mean something different? Because words change over time, don't they? Don't they? I mean, think about, for example, think about the word gay. Today, gay refers to a particular uh, sexual orientation. 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, gay meant colorful, bright, and cheerful. Had no connotations with anybody's uh, sexual orientation at all. Meant one thing then, means one thing now. Words change. The word cool, it's not a word that, that the young people use nowadays, is it? But cool used to mean hot didn't it? Now, they, well, they went through a period, we went through a period where anything good was bad, and now anything that was bad, which is good, is sick. <laughs> right? Words change their meaning. The word awesome at one time meant something that was filled with awe. It filled us with wonder. It filled us with amazement. Now, one, uh, awesome just means cool or bad or hot or sick. <laughs> <laughs> love. Love has a multiplicity of meanings. But love is a relational word, isn't it? It's a word of commitment. It's a word that historically has been used in, re in relation to to one person having love for another or for a group of people. It's a, it's a word that's relational. But I love ice cream and I love chocolate as well, don't I? <laughs> Words have different meanings. So what about this word hate? Does this word hate mean hate? Well, yes, it does. 
<laughs> we can't use an argument that, well, maybe culturally it means something different. No, it doesn't. It means what we think it means. So what do we do with this? I think one of the things we need to, we need to think about, first of all, is who, who this Jesus is who's, who's speaking these words. See, we have this image. We all have a very different image of Jesus, I think. If I, if, I go, if I go around this room and ask you, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? There's, there's more than 100 people in this room. We'd get about 250 different answers. Who is Jesus to you? And the challenge with all our different answers is we all put Jesus in a little box. And this is who Jesus is. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. There's a Jesus that we expect in every single situation. We expect Jesus to respond in a particular way with love and lambs and children on his lap and lollipops and all kinds of lovely things. That's the Jesus we expect. But when we read a passage like this, we find the Jesus that we do not expect. We find a Jesus who is much harder than we imagine. We find a Jesus who lays the cost of following him on the line and says, guys, it is hard. You want to follow me? You have no idea. He lays it out there. And we find it so difficult to see Jesus in any other way than the way we are used to seeing him. We need to change our glasses, don't we? Oops, I lost my microphone. But we need to, sometimes we need to change our glasses. Our glasses help us see in a particular way. And sometimes, our, I need new glasses actually, but sometimes our glasses are a wee bit out of focus. And we can only see certain things. If I'm looking for something, say Maureen sends me into the kitchen and says, Ian, I need you to find X, and it's right there. And I go and I look right there. Is it right there? No. And I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking, and I'm looking right there, and it's not right there. And I can't see it, I can't find it. And she'll, I say, Maureen, it's not there. And she comes along, and it's about three inches away from where she said it was. It's right here. Well, you said it was right there. Sometimes we can only see what we want to see, where we want to see it. And that's not just a problem that, that I have with finding things that my wife wants me to get. It's a problem that we all have with Jesus. We only see the Jesus that we want to see. So what do we do with this? Well, let's think about this. Let's think about this a wee bit more. There was a teaching that many of the rabbis had at the time, that it was right to love one's family. It was important to love one's family. That was the calling that all people, families were important. Families were the future. Family was what everything was about. Family was first and nothing else mattered. Have children, keep on having children, propagate, populate the earth. It's important. You've got to do it. It's all about family. And you had to love your family. And you had to be committed. And absolutely. But they also had a, a teaching that went alongside with that. Alongside that that said, 
As much as you love your family, if you have an enemy, you don't need to love that enemy. In fact, you can hate your enemy. If someone has wronged you, absolutely wronged you, and brought destruction in some way upon you or upon your spirit or upon your soul or upon your heart, then you can wrong that person back. You can hate them. You find that in some of the Psalms, don't you? If one of the Psalms, it talks about, um, uh, I think, is it the Psalm about the rivers of Babylon where we sat down and wept? Where they go to this, 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 this place that's far from home where they've been sent away from all they've ever known and all they've ever loved. And there's this sense of mourning and this sense of we want to be back home again. And then the Psalm concludes with this image that strikes terror into our hearts and it's horrific on so many levels but the psalm ends with this image of God's people saying the day is coming when we will take your babies and we will dash them against the rocks it's in the psalms it's right to hate your enemies well if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that Jesus said to those who followed him, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Love them. If someone's done you wrong, love them. If someone takes your, your, your coat, give them your jacket as well. If someone wants you to walk a mile, walk two miles. Love them. Don't hate them. Standing in the face of what the rabbis were teaching. And so here, in this passage, we also find Jesus standing and flying in the face of what the rabbis were teaching. Love your enemies. Hate your family. What well, it still doesn't get us any further forward, does it? What is he talking about? What does it mean to hate your family. Well, one other thing that was happening at that time and happens today in certain cultures. And few, if any of us, have ever experienced this. When, you, when they became followers of Jesus in the very earliest church, one of the things that happened was, and ha again happens in some cultures still today, when you begin following Jesus, you're taking on a brand new identity. You become a disciple of Christ. You become a follower of him. And culturally, for some groups of people, to become a follower of Jesus means that you cease to be a part of your culture and your family of origin. Mothers and fathers cast their sons and daughters out. They become enemies. Do I wonder? Is Jesus saying something along the lines of this? Your parents are becoming your enemies. They're casting you out. The rabbis have taught hatred of enemies. If you're identifying them in that way as your enemy, you need to remember 
what I've taught you about enemies. Is it possible that Jesus, in this use of the word, hate your father and mother and identifying them as enemies is it possible he's actually doing the opposite is it possible he's saying those that have cast you out those that are ostensibly your enemies those that seem to have no love for you those that are showing you hatred love them because i've already charged you to love your enemies Perhaps, perhaps not. But let me give you one more, one more thought on this passage. We often tend to think of Jesus as speaking very straightforwardly and very literally. But we find again and again he uses many figures of speech. And here, I believe, Jesus is using a figure of speech that we're all familiar with, that I use all the time, Hyperbole. Hyperbole means overstating. The word literally means to, to throw something as far as you can possibly throw it. That's what the word hyperbole literally means. So Jesus is throwing this thing out and, and overstating what it is he is intending to say, to grab his hearer's attention. If you're going to follow me, I have to be your first love. I have to be your first commitment. I have to be number one. And all other loves that you may have, everything else is going to look like hatred. The story told, someone stood before Jesus and said, Lord, show me how much you love me. And Jesus stretched out his arms and he died. Jesus' love is a love that surpasses all other loves. And he calls for the same love from you and from me. Our desire is for him. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you. Did, you. did you catch that last piece? We talked about this a wee bit last week. Everything else will be added to you. When Christ is our first desire, all our desires are reframed in Jesus. All our desires are desiring what Christ would desire. When he is first, everything else falls into place and falls into shape. There's another story told. In Paris, many, many years ago, three young, very arrogant philosophy students at the University of Paris found themselves in Notre Dame Cathedral. As they were going around, they were watching all the, all the, all the, the, the folks go through the motions uh, that, that, that folks do in that particular tradition. They saw them kneeling for prayer. They saw them lighting the candles. They saw them going to confession. They saw them do all, everything 
that was required of them. And they were making a fool of everything that they saw. And one of the young philosophy students said to the two others, I bet you I can go through this entire day and I can go through all these motions and nobody will guess that I am not a Christian. And the other said, no, you're not going to get away with that. And the young man said, I'm going to put some real money on this. So they took up the bet. And he started. He went into one of the pews. He knelt down. He made the sign of the cross. He, 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 he prayed his prayers. He went over to where the candles were. And he dropped in some money. And he lit some, he lit some candles. And he was going through these motions and spending. There was a time in which he had to do this. He was spending his time doing it. And he went to his friends and said, I've done it. And he said, there's one thing you've not done. And they said, what is that? You've not been to confession. You need to go to confession. Okay? So he did. He went to confession. And it happened that the priest, the confessor that day, <coughs> was an old man who had been walking around the church much of the day and had seen everything that this young man had been doing and watched him go through all of these motions, watched the smugness and the arrogance with which he was doing them. And as the young man confessed some things, made up a few things here and there, said some real things, the priest gave him this act of penance. So I want you to stay in the cathedral until the day is almost done when everyone else is gone. And I want you to go into the side chapel. And he pointed out to where the side chapel was where the young man gave him the directions. And in that side chapel, there's a beautiful, beautiful crucifix. And I want you to kneel before that crucifix. And three times I want you to say these words. And forgive me. But three times I want you to say these words. Staring at the crucifix. You died for me and I don't give a damn. A young man thought to himself, I can do that. I can absolutely do that. So he thanked the father, left, sat down in one of the pews and waited till everyone was gone. Then he made his way to the side chapel and there on the wall was this large, almost life-sized cross and image of the crucified Christ. Very, very lifelike. The eyes of the Christ seemed to be looking directly at this young man. No problem, he said. He knelt down, he looked up at the cross and said, you died for me and I don't give a damn. And he paused. And he looked at the cross. And he looked at the one hanging on the cross and he saw the wounds that were there and he saw the, the blood it was painted in such a lifelike way on this, on this image. And he saw the eyes of the Christ boring deep into him. And the second time he said, you died for me and I... And he paused. And he could say no more. For even as those eyes seemed to bore deep into his soul, he saw that there was, there was love. A love that he had never known before. That this man, for whatever reason, all these years ago, 
had been nailed to this cross for love. And it was a love that this young man had never known and could never fully understand, but he knew in that moment that he was loved beyond all loves. And the tears began to flow. And he looked into the eyes of the Christ and simply said, you died for me. And he broke down. And he wept. And as the Christ loved him, so he loved the Christ. And the story goes on that this young man from an atheist philosophy student at the University of Paris became the Archbishop of Paris many years later. You see, Christ's love for us is a love beyond all other loves. And all other loves look like hate in the light of Christ's love. And that, my dear friends, is the love that he has for each one of you and it's the love that he calls us to have towards him. May we know the cost and truly be willing to pay that cost and love him because he first loved us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Our hymn is number 729, Lord, I want to be a Christian.